So I own three ducks, and they've been part of my quarantine crew. I've deepened my relationship with them tremendously since my home has become my world, and I don't leave often except for little solo activities. And um, I've noticed that as my love for these ducks has grown, so has my hatred when they do things that I don't like. I just put in two new garden beds with fresh veggies, and I put up fences around those garden beds. And these little ducks are like velociraptors. They test every part of the fence again and again and again all day long until they can find a little hole in it. And then freaking Greg Long, the brown duck, um, all three of them are named after big wave surfers, Greg Long, Shane Dorian, Mark Healy. But Greg is this aggressive little bastard and he burrows his way in and he eats my veggies. I just started my freaking lettuce and I went out there and uh, I came in after surfing and I was taking a shower and I saw Greg in the garden bed and I had to run after him naked and pull him out of my garden bed. And he knew that he, what he was doing was not cool. He knew it. He looked at me with that guilty looks. I'm a little peeved right now, but I do love them because they provide three eggs every single day. And I haven't had to buy eggs in six months now. I recommend that everyone get ducks. Just if you have garden bed, put some electric fence around that shit. That's all I got to say. I've been writing a lot, and I just posted a new article on my website called How to Interview Your Dad and Why You Should Do It Now. I did a podcast with my pops, and then I wrote an article giving interview techniques and daring this audience to interview their own dads. And man, a lot of you guys are doing it. Makes me feel good. Um, I say it often, but I just have the coolest people that listen to this show. The fact that so many of you are up for that challenge, um, it just is... uh, I don't know. It, it makes me feel really good. So thanks, everyone. And uh, if you, I, I appreciate all the comments that you write on my website. I always um, read them and, and do my best to reply to as many as I can. So kyle.surf is where you can check out that article. This episode is supported by the Nell Newman Foundation. And rather than sell you a product in this ad, I get to sell you a cause that I believe in. The whole point of this ad is to connect you with people who are doing good work in the world. And this month, the project that we are highlighting is the Ron Finley Project. The Ron Finley Project is based in South Los Angeles and envisions a world where gardening is gangster, where cool kids know their nutrition and where communities embrace the act of growing, knowing, and sharing the best of Earth's fresh-grown food. Inspired by the idea of turning unused spaces such as parkways and vacant lots into fruitful endeavors, this garden and gathering place will be a community hub where people learn about nutrition and join together to plant, work, and unwind. I've been to this this community hub. I've had Ron on on the podcast. And it's this forest of, of food um, in what would otherwise be an unused lo- used lot. And um, there's a pool there that they've turned into a garden. So I called Ron and I said, hey, man, um, we're going to spotlight what you're doing and we want to connect you with volunteers. And more specifically, um, I asked, "Do you is there anything that you need right now? Because maybe there's someone listening who could help support and provide this. And this is what 
Ron said. Uh, it's Ron Finley from the Ron Finley Project, Gangster Gardener. Um, what I'm trying to do here is um, beautify my space more, where it's more convenient and more lush. And, and um, what I want to do is start bringing more community in. So what we need, we need somebody that can build us a riser inside our swimming pool. And also we got a deck going in so we can have yoga classes and we can do dinners and lunches and presentations. And that's, that's what I want this space to be this welcome and opening to show people how we can design these urban areas to look beautiful and design them for humanity. That's what we're trying to do. So if any of you out there are builders and down the line would be willing to support Ron in building this riser, um, contact me and I will get you guys connected. And thank you again to the Nell Newman Foundation for letting me do such cool fucking ads. (laughs) This episode is also supported by Santa Cruz Medicinals. And because Santa Cruz Medicinals lets lets me do ads however I want, I'm going to talk about sharks for a moment. Did you know that sharks existed before trees? It's true. Sharks existed 450 million years ago, whereas trees only existed 350 million years ago. What's more, great white sharks will sometimes eat their brothers and sisters in utero. According to a Forbes article, inside each female, infant teeth are put to good use as the female's two largest unborn pups slowly eat their siblings. It ensures only the strongest and largest babies survive. Think about that next time you're trying to act tough, all right? Sharks are eating each other in the frickin' womb. So head over to Santa Cruz Medicinals, scmedicinals.com, type in the codename KYLE10 and get 10% off any CBD product. That's scmedicinals.com. This episode is with Kurt Braunhuller. Kurt is an American comedian and writer. He's appeared on Comedy Central, This American Life, and Radiolab. And in 2017, Braunhuller wrote for and acted in the widely acclaimed movie, The Big Sick. I also had a chance to work with Kurt on the Motherfucker Awards this year. He played Alec Alecman, the founder of Alec. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the Motherfucker Awards is a satirical awards show that we put on where we celebrate corporations that fuck Mother Earth. It was an absolute joy to work with Kurt. He was professional. He showed up on time, ready to go, and he knocked it out of the park. It was um, really mind-blowing for me to see just how proficient and fast and good a a professional comedian is when they put their mind to something. Um, And... Kurt's work is just top notch. I recommend that you all check out his uh, special on Comedy Central. And without further preamble, please give it up for Kurt Braunholer. Thank you, sir. How you doing? Yeah. Good. How you doing? It's fucking hot here. My air conditioning's broken, dude. <laughs> oh, are you in Silver been Lake? Broken for three days, huh? Are you in Silver Lake? I'm in Atwater. Atwater. Oh, that's fun, and it's hot weather down there. Mm-hmm. And that's and and then for some reason I decided to put this organic fertilizer on my garden, which is just fucking manure, 
and and I and it's been sitting in like my backyard for a long time. So a bunch of flies had like laid maggots in it, and now. It not only and my office is my garage, and and it's right next to the fucking garden, so it just smells like horse shit. And there's a thousand flies everywhere, and the air conditioner's broken. And uh, we just started having the kids share a room last night, and they screamed all night long. And I'm like, I'm a broken man, Kyle. I'm a broken man. <laughs> I I gardened uh, last night in the evening with my mom, who has a, a green thumb, and it, all of our houses growing up smelled like shit. <laughs> yeah. And to the point where when we would move into a new house, she had a system where she would give the neighbors gifts like a week prior to a huge manure dump. <laughs> <laughs> so people couldn't be mad. Like bake them pie before we just <laughs> made the whole neighborhood smell like shit for weeks on end. <laughs> it is really intense. I just I thought like the sun would burn the smell out or something, but that has not happened. <laughs> um, also, just FYI, my, the AC guy is coming at some point this afternoon. Who knows when? So if it's during this, I'll just say like I gotta go for a second, and cool. I'll come right back. Or we could just bring him on, talk about AC yeah. for a while. Yeah, huge yeah, I can't touch turn. him. I can't touch him. There's a pandemic, Kyle. I can't have him near me. Are you still able to surf? I can't surf. I, well, I mean, like, I haven't been surfing just because since I've had, I've gone out twice since since my my youngest was born seven months ago. So it's just with with the two kids at this such a young age, it's like we're just overwhelmed. So I have not been surfing, and it's been bumming me out. Are you, you're a North County guy, right? Is that where you mostly go to surf? You know, when I first moved to LA, I I I only went for some reason to Porto. That wave sucks. sucks. I, I surfed that wave once and vowed to never return. It really sucks. Uh, and then I stopped surfing it. It was like a really, it was a pretty big swell, winter swell, and I was out with my cousin. And on on the same set, we both caught waves, and they both snapped our leashes because that when Porto gets big, it gets like thumping. Um, and we both got like held down, and then I was, we were, I was just like, you know, I don't need to surf Porto anymore. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I guess I go north more often. I think I surf like uh, like Ventura, mostly Ventura Point, um, but kind of all over. I like to go to Oxnard and and County Line and stuff like that. County Line's a fun wave. You're yeah, it's fun. You're used to driving though, right? Because you you grew up in in New Jersey, and yeah. then. Then you moved to New York for 14 years to do comedy. Uh-huh. And were you surfing while you were living in New York doing comedy? Yeah, I had a surf bungalow in Rockaway. Really one of the first surf bungalows. I think I started renting it in 2001. Um, and it still exists. Like I left in 2012. And the guys, at least one guy who is who I, who was in it from the get-go with me uh, is still in it today. But it's just like ten guys. When I say guys, I mean men and women. Uh, but yeah, the, ten the, surfers. <laughs> all of the surf shack glory days. Everyone's just a group full of guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's like some old senile landlord who's never learned that he could raise the rent, kind of deal. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, he's uh, our our guy. The landlord owner is firefighter, great guy, and he was like, he just kind of like approached me about it because I rented the place next to him for just a summer, and it wasn't it wasn't a winterized place. And then he mentioned that his back place was winterized, and then we we're like. I remember we were, I was surfing with two buddies and they're like, do you think we could do like make this work? And I was like, where are we going to find 10 surfers, 10 people who surf Rockaway who don't live here? And then like, we found them like that. But like, but like back then it was like, you know, in the winter time back then it would be three guys out at 91st street, which is if you, if you've ever, if anybody's ever surfed Rockaway, like that, it's unheard of now. It like it could be twenty degrees out, and there's like thirty five guys at one peak, you know, and it's like two feet, fucking <laughs> and shit. I always see those photos of New Jersey guys like Sam Hammer, yeah, getting Sam Hammer, he blown rips. out of barrels, and there's snow in the foreground. Is that a, like a frequent occurrence in New Jersey? Well, the thing is, is that you know because it's on the East Coast and all the weather patterns, you know, move west to east. It's like some of the best swell comes when you get a big, when you get like a nor'easter, when you get a uh, like a big storm coming through. Because af- after it goes offshore, then it kind of generates a little bit of swell coming back in. And so, yeah, every year from like 2001 to like 2006, every um, uh, it was February 14th. Uh, every February 14th, there was like a big snowstorm and there was awesome surf. And I have a video, the only, the only ride I've ever got caught on video was like 2004, big snowstorm. And it's one of the biggest waves I've ever ridden in my entire life. It's like double overhead, uh, like true double overhead. And I just drop in and just like fucking just, I don't, do any turns or anything i just like go along the face and then like kick out before it closes out and i'm like this is the best this is the best video ever but it's like you see it's like it's a blizzard there's like a lot of snow coming down um that's intense do you wear vaseline i've I've heard rumors that people will wear vaseline so it doesn't like water doesn't freeze to their face yeah that's not necessary in new york Uh, i think you would probably need that in maine um anywhere colder but like I think, you know, around, I remember when I was like hardcore into winter surfing, I would, I stopped going out when it was under 20 degrees. Cause like around 15 degrees, like icicles start forming on your like eyelashes and stuff. And that can be annoying. Um, Cause it just, then you, just water gets in your eye so much easier. Cause you can't close your eye properly. Um, but yeah, like 20 degrees was where I would draw the line unless it was really good. But like, you know, 25, you could go out for kind of shitty surf. But also, you know, it's like tech, wetsuit tech is so good now. It's like, you're not cold, you know? It makes a huge difference. It's funny to me how there are these different levels of normalcy. Like Hawaii guys are like, burr, springtime. I need to wear a spring suit. This is chilly. (laughs) Yeah. And then the the SoCal guys are like, I had to wear a full suit today. And then the Santa Cruz guys are like, I couldn't put my fingers together today. And then the (laughs) New Jersey guys are like, "Ah, I got got ice on my eyelashes. (laughs) And also how quickly quickly you adjust. Because I moved to... Uh, LA in 2012 and then I was like I could still I could still surf winter I could still put on a 5-4 with booties and gloves and go out and uh, my buddy Jonah Ray was doing this show um, Hidden America which was kind of like a like a parody of of like a, a travel show and they did um, they did Cincinnati 
Is it no Cleveland? They did Cleveland, and I think it's Cleveland. It's Cincinnati. Whichever one is on Lake Erie. Um, and so I was. He was like, "Do you want to surf the Great Lakes?" And I was like, "Yeah." And it was like February, and so we went out in Lake Erie and went surfing. And it, like the waves were actually like there were waves, but it was like just wind chop, and it was just nonstop. There was like it was just like boom, 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 and it was. I put on the 5'4", and I had just been surfing in, you know, my 2'3", and got it all, and the wind was just whipping, and I just ate shit for like two hours while people are filming me, and it was so embarrassing. It was very embarrassing. So I was like, oh yeah, I lost my hardcore cred. I'm, I'm not hardcore anymore. <laughs> we, we adjust very quickly. So were you then commuting from New Jersey and doing comedy in the night and then going back to the surf house? No, no, no. I so I lived in Brooklyn uh, from nine nineteen ninety eight until I left in two thousand twelve, and then uh, just started renting that surf shack, uh, the bungalow, uh, in like two thousand one. So I would so on the A train, it's an hour and a half uh, mm-hmm. from where I would live to Rockaway, and so it just like you know if it was going to be good in the morning, and that's another thing about the East Coast too, is it's like. Often days, it's good for one hour. <laughs> the yeah, moment, you get such short windows there, such right? short it's windows, so independent. Yeah, yeah. The like, it's like from sun up until eight thirty when it just goes on shore and it's complete shit. And so, <laughs> like at midnight, I would just like hop on the train uh, and ride out there, sleep, and then wake up and surf, and then go to work. Mm. And that was were you beautiful. living with? Were you living with other comics? No, 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 no. I uh, no, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. My girlfriend from college, uh, and we were dating until I was thirty-one. We dated for thirteen years, a long time. I saw that you did a, a This American Life episode about that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. That was great. <laughs> and then you were so you you basically cut your chops in Brooklyn as a comic. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I started doing I started doing improv at UCB when they first opened in '99. Um, and I did improv for like years for like seven years I was teaching improv and stuff. And I just had never, I was like in my head, I was like, Oh, I'll start writing when I have something to say, you know? And really that was just an excuse to never start writing. Yeah. Then, it's a good procrastination technique. Yeah, exactly. Right. Cause if you're not well, thinking about what you want to say, you'll never find out what you want to say. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're not trying to say something, you're never going to say anything. So it's an easy way. To, it's just a circular loop of keeping you from never doing the work. I forget who said it. I was listening to it on a Tim Ferriss podcast. Um, but one author was like Neil Gaiman or something. He said, I don't know what I think until I write about it. Oh, yeah. It's not, I, it's not like he's thinking about it and then he's going to write it down. He yeah. like sits there and then the thought comes. It's 100% true. And it's like it's the same thing, too, with um, when I used to teach improv, you know, like that whole idea of like, you don't know what you're going to do. Like the act of stepping out onto stage to begin a scene is that like, is the choice that makes the thing come without that first choice, then the thing doesn't come. It's not magic. Mm. So was there a point when you started ramping up your writing a lot when you just realized that, all right, if I actually want to get good at comedy, I got to sit down in front of the computer for long periods of time? Yeah, it was very specific. Um, I We went to Edinburgh, which is this big theater festival, comedy festival in uh, Scotland, 
with uh, an improv group that I had called Neutrino, we had created this kind of new improv form called the Neutrino Video Projects, which was, and this was 2004, uh, it was a it was a movie that was like shot, screened, shot, edited, and screened in real time while the audience was in the theater. So we had three camera crews that ran live outside the theater, and we would get a suggestion inside the theater, and then the three crews would run out, and in two minutes they would each shoot a two minute scene, and then we'd have fi- people physically run the mini DV tapes back up into the theater where we had a VJ who had two decks who would then mix the video together. And we had a DJ who would then also add a soundtrack in real time. And so then while the people, while the audience was watching the six minutes we created in two minutes, we were shooting another two minute scene, but with like in-camera editing. Uh, And so it would take a little longer to shoot and then we would run those tapes in. And so you kind of like build up enough time until like the final scene is like one thing that like connects all the scenes together. And it was when it worked, it was like fucking magic. Uh, but it was like when it didn't work, it was unbearable to watch. And uh, and so we went to Edinburgh with that, and we lost ten thousand dollars. <laughs> and so I came back, and I'd been fucking working at a at an office job for eight years, and I was like, I can't, I can't have comedy cost me money anymore. Like I've been doing it for eight years at this point. Like I can't lose money this way. So I just decided that I was going to stop focusing on improv and start writing. And so I started uh, doing a weekly comedy show with Kristen Shaw called Hot Tub, which we still do to this day, every Monday night, 8 p.m. And now it's online. Did it start in Brooklyn? Uh, Started in Manhattan, this theater called The Pit. And we're at The Pit, we're at UCB, we're at Pianos, we're at this place called Comics. Then we went to Brooklyn uh, we're at a, a space called Littlefield for two years, and then we both moved to L.A., and it's been at uh, the Virgil on Santa Monica and Virgil for uh, almost eight years now. I went to a show. It was great. Oh, thanks, you man. Did, you, yeah, you did your uh, Alec Alexson first draft bit on stage, remember? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I was happy that I... That's what's nice about Hot Tub for me, and that's why we still, Kristen and I still do it 15 years later is... You just, it's a perfect place to try out new stuff and, and, you know, and bomb miserably constantly (laughs) or to have slight success. Hey, did you, have you seen the new Netflix show that is a completely improv show? It's two, two dudes and, and it's a fully filmed show. It sounded kind of similar to what you were just talking about. It's Ben Schwartz and, um, and, um, and uh, Thomas Middleditch, right? Yes. Yeah. I just saw the first episode, but I thought it was a really interesting concept. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's very, yeah, I mean, like, that's what we, yeah, what I what I used to do many years ago. And then I, once I started doing stand-up, I just was like, I love stand-up. Hmm. I prefer How old it. were you when you started stand-up? I was 29. Pretty old. Wow. Pretty old. Yeah. And also, like, it was essentially like re- restarting, you know? Like I'd been doing improv since I was 22. And then pretty like, felt like pretty good in that world, you know, for doing it for seven years. And then just like, it was starting over again. Like there was very few skills that transferred other than like stage, being comfortable on stage. Which but very is a huge quickly. amount. I mean, a lot of comics, it takes them like a couple of years just to get comfortable on stage before they can get up and say what they want to say. Yeah. But still, you when you eat shit, 
so much, you kind of lose that confidence. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're just oh, yeah. like, and it's also, That's... it was so confusing to me. Like writing jokes was so, it confused me for years. I wrote the weirdest stuff for years that made no sense to anyone other than me. Um, and I still do. Um, but I just realized you just have to write a whole, you have to, I, I have to, I personally have to write like one out of 10 things I write works. So it's like a 90% failure rate for me. Hmm. And how long will you try out a joke before you stop using it? Great question. Uh, you know, there's some why, jokes. Why I've, is that? Why, why is that a great question? Because there's some jokes that have never worked that I've done thousands of times. And <laughs> I just like, I just like them. It. I just yeah. like them and I'm like, they're wrong. I'm right. Uh, but they're not. It's just that I, it's either that I, I'm not doing the work hard enough to make it work. And I think that that is like, uh, if I had to give myself a criticism as a comic is I tend to get into a way of saying a joke and the rhythm of it and the repetition of it like freezes in my brain so that I don't break it apart and find out ways to make little parts better. And I need to get better at that. Um, so I'll, some, I'll, oftentimes I'll say a part of a joke that doesn't work for years before realizing like this part has never fucking worked and I've never bothered <laughs> like breaking it down and trying new parts to it, you know? And then I try a new part to it. I'm like, oh my God, this joke is so much better. And it's like 10 minutes of work for like six years of doing a terrible joke. Do you think that that happens and it, this might be totally off, but like you'll say something that you want to work because you want to make the point? Like you think it's an important thing to say, so yeah. you hold on to it, and then you'll just be like, fuck, it's not funny and has never been. But then when you do that long enough, you start hating the point because it doesn't get laughs. And then you start thinking that the problem is with the point and not the fact that you failed to make it funny. And then you have to like pull back and be like, no, this point is a good point. I'm just not making it funny. I have to find out a way to make it funny, which is a tough like thing to you know police in your brain hmm hmm yeah um i uh one thing i wanted to ask you about just because I've, I've noticed it like come up a bit in your comedy and then on your podcast is your relationship with animals uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your relationship like with animals i don't know i mean i i feel like i just think they're so funny um i think there's like that inherent difference that inherent otherness of an animal especially because we assign we anthropomorphize animals so much to be able to relate to them uh but there's an inherent otherness to them that i think is just like that difference like i think difference is funny you know like of expectation and reality um and i don't know i have no idea but i've i've often noticed like i have this new podcast called bananas and we were going through, and it's all about strange news. And we we're going through to pick some of the headlines to be in like the trailer for the podcast before it came out. And I realized after we had put it together, I had chosen only animal titles. Like <laughs> they were all animal related just because I thought they were all the most funny. Um, so, yeah. So, I, like, I don't know. It's some unconscious part of my brain. Well, I listened to your old podcast, uh, The K-Hole, and oh, yeah. you have the animal news section in it. Oh, yeah, where yeah, Where there's yeah. Weird, animals, uh, weird animal stories in every episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that format of The K-Hole had the unfortunate name of Pet Ophelia. 
uh, P-E-T, petophilia. Uh, yeah, that was, you know, it was a different time. <laughs> <laughs> that that podcast has not existed since, I think, 2014. <laughs> you know, I was never an animal guy growing up. Um, my big brother had a dog. It was not really my dog, though. Um, and then even being a surfer, like, you're around animals, but not really. Like you'll sometimes you'll see a dolphin come up or a yeah. seal or something like that. It wasn't until I started spearfishing and hunting mm-hmm. that I got really into animals, which is, I mean, in some ways weird because yeah. it wasn't until I wanted to start killing them that I started <laughs> caring about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's true. <laughs> now I'm so fascinated by all of the different you know fish migrations through Santa Cruz, and I just went on my first turkey hunt in oh, Sa- wow. in the Santa Cruz mountains. Yeah, yeah. I I bow hunt, and uh, the That's turkeys, wi- wild turkeys, will roost in the redwood trees. Oh, wow. So I'll go up there and sit in the redwood trees. And the way you hunt turkey is you call them with this little scratcher yeah. and it mimics the sound of a female. And then the males will come down from the redwoods and they'll they'll fan out and you'll know, they'll like strut up and you gotta stay totally still. But in the on the in the process of trying to kill these birds, it's given me this huge reverence and respect for them and then how they're interacting with the rest of the ecosystem. It's yeah. uh it's enhanced my my life tremendously to the point where i now have pet ducks in my backyard oh wow you have how many ducks do you have three their names are uh mark healy shane dorian and greg long (laughs) did did you uh did you get a turkey on this last trip i did yeah oh wow yeah this has been the best quarantine ever for me because i just go up by myself into the redwoods for the first couple hours of of daylight and I try and hunt a turkey. Uh-huh. Nine times out of ten, it's a failure. But I, I did get one. Uh, and then I come back and I put it on the smoker that I have and oh, nice. feed my housemates. Oh, and in awesome. Santa Cruz, yeah, in Santa Cruz, we can still surf too. Oh, so man. people are like, "Oh my gosh, how's your quarantine?" I'm like, "Uh, no, man, you're just surfing and hunting. That sounds <laughs> yeah, so awesome. It's horrible." <laughs> Where do you go out in Santa Cruz, Steamer Lane? I live right near Pleasure Point. Oh, okay. Have you ever surfed there? No, I have never. I've only I've surfed um, just north of Santa Cruz, and I can't. I think it may have it maybe was Pleasure Point. I don't know. That's on the east I side. I can't remember. It's okay. a mushy right hand point break with a lot of humans, but uh, I don't mind it. It's really nice to get to go out and like I can get like from door to door one hour. Like I'm out there. I go go surf for you know. 55 minutes and then run back to my house. Like there's not a lot of commuting process. That's amazing. I've never, lucky. except for when I grew up, I've never been able to surf. I've never, it's always been at least an hour to the beach for me. Yeah. Just in New that's York. Like, and that's in like LA. its own form of grit. Yeah. <laughs> How long you're willing to sit in traffic. <laughs> It it sucks so much. I really want to move to the west side. It's just that I don't know. I don't. I, I know one person who lives on the west side. Like everyone I know in comedy is on the east side in L.A. And so it's like we literally would just be. We would have to just make new friends or just not have friends. Just surf all the time. <laughs> They're yeah. Surfers don't have friends. <laughs> surfers hate other humans. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about it. Like I want to maybe try and go out next week. And just try and organize it and just go up to Ventura where it's still legal. Yeah. And are most of the spots that you perform in LA close to your house? 
Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, for the most part. I mean, now public performance is gone. We're not going to, there's going to be no public performance probably until 2021. So it's like, they used to be. That's the craziest thing. Like, I, who knows what stand-up comedy is going to look like in the future? It's going to be very different. You know, all these clubs, there was such a stand-up boom kind of because of podcasts. Um that's so like there there's like small cities that have like multiple comedy clubs which wasn't the case since the 80s and then there was a big crash in the 80s and all these clubs closed and then it just kind of got back to 80s level and then boom this is going to close so many clubs man it's going to be real sad what caused the drop off in the 80s i think it was oversaturate oversaturation yeah, I think it was oversaturation. People were just going to, and there wasn't quality control. When you have that many places and that many places that have to pack an audience in every single night, you're not going to get like great. So, you know, you go out to a comedy club enough times and don't have a good time, you just stop going and then it all just falls apart from there. Yeah. Santa Cruz has been in a little boom itself. I, I, I just do open mics, but there's there used to be before this five nights a week that you could do an open mic with twenty yeah. people in the audience, and, and there's, just that, op- there's that there's that new it. comedy there's that new comedy club there. DNA's right? comedy DNA. club, yeah, yeah. DNA's great. I, I went and saw Eddie Pepitone there a couple months back. Nice, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of coming. I was. Thinking of coming up and doing it just to surf. Yeah, um, you should. Yeah. In the, someday. <laughs> I hope they make it. Has not performing impacted the way that you think as far as coming up with jokes? I've found that um, to you know you come up with a joke, you'll say it on stage, and then it'll either work or it won't, but maybe you'll come up with a bunch of new ideas while you're there. Um have you have you found it more difficult to come up with jokes just staying at home? Well, you know, it's because of the fact that so once I had a family, I've been trying to find a way to transition out of having to tour so much and so I've been moving more into script writing just in order to cuz otherwise, you know, uh like at my level of like just write medium middle of the road stand-up guy who tours you have to tour a lot to like support a family and so and that means you're just away from your family all the time uh and so i've been trying to find a way to be able to write from home and be able to support myself and my kids and my family so i have been like transitioning to doing that and now that performing is just gone like, I've just been focusing on that. So it's much more like every day I'm writing, but I'm writing scripts instead of stand-up. But I'm still writing a little bit of stand-up to do for Hot Tub, because we do Hot Tub every Monday. But there's no, there's there's less riffing because there's no audience feedback. We're working on it. We're trying to get a way to get audience feedback that doesn't sound horrible. How is script writing different than writing jokes? Oh, it's much more about structure. It's much more about emotional arcs. You know, it's much more about, um, you know, because like uh, it's to write a good comedy. And I think I might be paraphrasing Judd Apatow here um, by accident, not by on purpose. 
But like, if you want to write a good comedy, you essentially have to write it as you have to think of it as a drama and then add jokes. Essentially, you can't really have like you, your emotional arc can't be like goofy because then people just don't identify with it. It's almost on like a subconscious level. So you have to have it be a real story, and then you make it funny. But if it's like a goofy, has it been helpful to like to to do improv because that is so much based around drama and emotions? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like it probably helps, and I think improv helps when you're writing um, uh, dialogue. I don't think it necessarily helps when you're like, you know, cracking a an emotional arc over the course of a season or a series. You know, that's more very much like just thinking about it and like, is this realistic with this kind of hat? You know, that sort of thing. Can you talk about any of the shows that you're writing for right now? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't want to, I have a, I have a pilot in the works right now that I don't, I don't like talking about stuff that's maybe going to go. Uh, I just don't want to jinx it, but I do have a pilot in the works right now at some place. I don't even want to mention where, and I'm very excited about that. Fingers crossed. But, uh, I'm also writing, I've written, my wife and I just wrote a movie that's based on our, uh, like kind of one of our second or third date um, happened in Paris because I was doing comedy in London. And uh, I was like, hey, why don't you come to London? <laughs> like we had just started dating. And so she did. And then we like took the train to Paris and had like the worst 36 hours of fucking imaginable. <laughs> like we almost broke up because Paris sucked so much for us. And we're like in the most romantic city in the world. And so, uh, so we wrote a rom-com based on that. Uh, just finished that. And then I just wrote another movie on my own, um, kind of about all about Asbury Park where I grew up. Um, and the fact that like my mom, my mom had a secret kid um, when uh, she was 16 that I never knew about. Um, and then after she died, I was like trying to find him. Uh, and so it's kind of about that, um, but it's comedy. but it's funny but it's funny (laughs) yeah how involved were you with um the big sick i know that you you played a part in that was there any writing that you were a part of in that yeah i also was the onset writer for that um and that is like the onset writing is kind of you know it's different from movie to movie i've done onset writing now on two movies i've done it on the big sick and on uh long shot for um it was lionsgate movie uh, that had Charlize Theron and uh, Seth Rogen in it. And it's different movie to movie, but it's essentially you're just on set and you're just pitching jokes constantly. It's like you just watch a scene and then see where jokes could be. And then just like, you know, sometimes you just write them down and like on long shot, we would literally, we had type, we had, we had, I almost said typewriters. We had computers and we would write <laughs> like all David our, Sedaris. Yeah. <laughs> While they're trying to shoot a scene, you're like, cha-ching, 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 bing. Do you uh, know that David Sedaris doesn't have a driver's license and he still uses typewriters? <laughs> he's a classic. He's a classic man. Um, and so, yeah, so you're just you're just pitching jokes and getting, you know, and then sometimes you're rewriting scenes as well. On Long Shot, we would rewrite scenes constantly. Um, and on The Big Sick, it was less. There was some, like, it would be, like, midnight, and we'd wrap and be like, this scene for tomorrow is not working. We'd have to, like, sit down and rewrite it. Um, but Does yeah. any com- do any come to mind from The Big Sick, just to, to kind of bring me into that world, what it, what it looks like being on set and writing those jokes? 
Yeah, I mean, like on the Big Sick, so it's like it's so weird, you know, like the difference between a movie like the Big Sick and a movie like Long Shot, you know, where it's like the Big Sick was a five million dollar movie, Long Shot was a fifty million dollar movie. Uh, like rewriting on those two different situations were very different. Um, so in, for the Big Sick, you know, it was like we were in like tiny Brooklyn apartments. And like the video village where we would sit was this cramped, cramped little bedroom and there was no air conditioning and it was the middle of summer. And so you're just like boiling, sweating. Um, And I remember the first day I came in, I'd never done onset writing. I was totally terrified of like how I would do it and stuff like that. And then uh, it was a scene with Ray Romano and Holly Hunter and Kumail and I like pitched Ray a couple jokes and I pitched Kumail a couple jokes. And then Holly was like, I want some jokes. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I like went into like the sweaty little room and it was just like scribbling jokes. And then like they, you know, they stopped, they called cut on a scene. And then Holly and I literally went into the bathroom and I like sat in the tub and then just like pitched her jokes. And, and she just like stared at me completely silently and just went, mm-hmm. 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 And she's like, all right, I'll do those. And then I was so like scared. And then they were like, some of them worked and I was like, Oh, okay. 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 I can do this. But that was like my first day was pitching Holly Hunter jokes. And she's never, she had never done a movie that had an onset writer. So she'd never gotten jokes pitched to her on set before, because it is kind of like a, it is a, a newer idea um, to have an onset writer that just like constantly pitches jokes. And I think it kind of started with like Apatow and stuff like that. Um, Apatow and, and also Seth. Uh, so yeah, it's mm. a crazy, it's a very specific uh, and weird job, um, but it's very enjoyable. Yeah. And you're writing the jokes for someone else too. So, yeah. it, so it's like that dynamic is different because you're not thinking about how the joke is going to play with, by you saying it on stage, you're thinking about them and their character and how it might work for them. Yeah. Which I would imagine is a just a different dynamic, kind of like editing someone else's work. Yeah. But also, yeah, and then but but I always do have an idea of like how I would want it pronounced or like how I would want it like emphasized. And Charlize would always make fun of me because when everyone would be pitching their jokes, and then I would always like like perform my joke. <laughs> And then she's like, okay, yeah, we see it. We get it, Kurt. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 but that's the way it's funniest. It was embarrassing. Is your wife a writer too? Yes, she is. Yeah, so we wrote we wrote that uh, movie together. And then we've, we've pitched a bunch of stuff together, uh, sold some stuff together. And so, yeah, we're actually, we just wrote something that we're just shooting during quarantine as well, a little short uh, series. Um, and so, yeah, we just started shooting that today. Have you ever done magazine writing or any kind of uh, journalism? I've only done it once. I did it once, and it was just like a a personal story. And I, it's so weird that I'm so used to writing for stand up that when I would go back and read what I wrote just to be read, it's it it it's it's horrible. It's it's bad because <laughs> it's not the way you speak is not the way you would want a, a well written piece in a magazine to read. Uh, so it's like, that's, I, I have to, if I ever do more of that, I have to really wrap my head around it. Yeah. Yeah. When we did, uh, the motherfucker awards I went, and we decided to bring journalists up to present awards and then 
we would have the comics go and present it. It didn't occur to me until like almost close to the show what similar but different jobs journalists and comedians have and and how infrequently they're in the same room, but also how much they respect each other. Yeah. Like I got your friend Moshe Kasher and Natasha Natasha Legero to to be a part of it the first year. I think largely because I was like, hey, that this journalist Matt Taibbi is going to present the award. And then Matt Taibbi is this writer who's like, oh, I love comedians. Like, great. (laughs) I'm going to get to present them an award. It was really cool. I love that event, man. You should. It's just like it's such a fascinating and it's it's a fun night, but also it's a world that I never swim in. And so to be there, I was just like, this is this is amazing that you've pulled it off. It's like, congratulations, man. It's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I I feel like I can confidently say that I've produced something now for oh, two years. <laughs> and well, and produced it well. Yeah, thanks. Much better than a lot of co- comedy festivals I've been to. <laughs> well, it was largely because of this podcast and uh-huh. Chris Ryan's podcast that we started talking about it and we had people who were listeners start to pitch in. So everyone from like the set designer to the editor and like all these different people started hitting us up on email and then we assembled this really amazing crew because that's at the end of the day it's like you're you're kind of just trying to direct the river at a certain point but there's so many people involved you just hope that everyone does their job well uh and if you get enough people that are doing their job well then the whole night turns out to be uh, you know a good show yeah uh and and that's you know that's what I was really happy with, and I think that it was largely the result of podcasting that we were able to get that many different kinds of people around. And mm. I also was in the kind of earnest environmental world for a long time, so I had those connections with the the journalists and activists who follow a lot of the, the corporate shenanigans. Um, so that was an advantage going into it. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was a lot of work. I, I I'm still um, and I I mean to direct this whole thing. <laughs> just flip it. No, around. not at I'm all. Kind of, I love it. Kyle therapy session. Um, I do wonder how helpful it is. You know, like I I wonder how much it is actually bringing new people into the conversation around environmental and social change versus how much it's just kind of. Uh, an echo chamber for people that already know about the issues and giving them a chance to laugh. And I do Uh think that that could be powerful just for the reason that, that people who are engaged in the movement need levity at times. And there aren't a lot of outlets for that. Um, But I, in some ways think that just recording a podcast with one of these journalists and talking for an hour and a half about what the issue is could potentially bring more people into the conversation than doing, you know, a, a huge expensive night. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, I, you, I don't think you can undervalue like a, the taking a break, like that whole like Ed Abbey quote of like, you can't be a warrior like every day. Um, that's a, that's a not, that's a paraphrase of an Ed Abbey quote, but uh, like you have to, you have to like be able to laugh about these things because it is that I, my, my friend, my very good friend, Rob is, uh, he works in, uh, he works in, uh, essentially resource 
edit this part where I can't remember the words that he uh, put his job into. Uh, fucking reusability recycling. Uh, Reduce, reuse, recycle. It's uh, waste infrastructure. Yeah, he works at the University something of Richmond green. doing something green. But I'm trying to remember what it's got. Something ability. What's ability? What's the something ability? Sustainability. Sustainability. Oh my god, Here that's go. what you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> So my friend Rob works in sustainability uh, in Virginia, and we we talk like almost every day. And the the stuff that he's dealing with at at all times is a dark worldview. And I think if you can just pierce some light into the people who are doing that hard hard work, I think that has value in and of itself. And eventually, as it gets big enough online, you will bring more people into the thing. You have to remember that you've you've done you've done two events, you know. It's like it takes years kind of like to build that that thing where other people outside the core group are being affected. But it, it does happen. It eventually does happen. And then by that time, it'll just be such a big behemoth that will take over your life. The, the most fun part of the whole process developing it was working with you and the other comics and giving you guys the facts and seeing yeah. how you would twist it into comedy because one of the more terrifying aspects of that show is getting something wrong. Yes. And, and I'm working with investigative journalists and making sure that everything is factually accurate and everything that we stay, say we can stand behind. But at, at, at when it's showtime, I don't actually know what the fuck the comics are going to say, Yeah, but I need to make sure that they understand what's happening. Right. And you being Alec Alekman, the founder of, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is this organization that gets, you know, memberships from corporations and then is a corporate bill mill and it drafts legislation to on the municipal level to undermine communities. Like that's kind of a difficult concept to make funny. But also on a very uh, on like if there is someone who is evil incarnate in the real world it is them because they do it on such a small level they do it on so, like on on the state level on the county level these fuckers are writing these and the bills are just like they just use them for all these different states it's like the exact same language and it's just about undermining communities constantly it's disgusting it's so crazy i had no idea that that existed and like so you know you brought me into the conversation and you nailed it. I mean, I, I think that you're the the whole idea of like, <laughs> being being having your your own asshole sewn shut <laughs> so that you could spew crap legislature was like you hit it on multiple levels, and I was Thanks, very man. grateful for that. Yeah, it was really uh, fun. It's really it's it's uh if if any comedians are listening to this, it is such a fun show to do. And if Kyle asks you, you should say yes. I'm I'm happy. Yeah, I uh I hate Alex so much that I decided to quit drinking for a year just to see if I could. Uh-huh. And to ensure that I could, I wrote a thousand dollar check to the American Legislative Exchange Council. Oh no. And I have it taped to my mirror and I need to cash it if I drink booze anytime within the next year. <laughs> oh my god, when did you when did you start that? About a month ago. Okay. And and oh boom! You started it in quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> man. I was, I was quarantine like, time is boozing time for me. <laughs> 
Nah, I could tell. I was like, either the intake is going to go way up or it needs yeah. to go way down. Yeah, exactly. I just eat uh, small doses of psychedelics and small oh. doses of, of uh, weed, and I find that I'm... That's nice. It makes I, me I, less sad. Yeah, I do enjoy uh, mushrooms. Just a little bit of mushrooms will be uh, will take care of you. Mm. Do, you. do you deal with the sads when you drink, or are you a, a good drinker? Uh, if I drink too much... I'll definitely be like my serotonin or whatever is depleted the next day, and I'll definitely be a little bummed out. Um, and so I try not to do that. Hmm. But That's I, good. I drink uh, pretty often, I would say. But nice. it doesn't, like, I'm not just constantly depressed and then drinking. I'm more just kind of happy all the time and then like, you know what would make this better? A drink. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe not 10, though. Yeah, maybe not 10. I Honestly, it's like now the quarantine, it's like, Two, two or three, that's fine. Mm, nice. You know, it's funny when I uh, I first was was introduced to you by uh, the, the the wonderful Moshe Kasher, who uh, who uh, said that you should do the show. Um, I initially was like, "Well, tell him I'll give him a surf lesson if he does it." And <laughs> and, and Moshe was like, "Oh, he, well, he's been a surfer for the last fifteen years." And then I looked at you online. And and you do not look like a surfer online. No, and on your comedy at all. And I had the thought, fuck, I bet he's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... Because I have a theory that really good surfers don't dress like surfers. Like if you yeah. go down to the beach and there's some guy in like a quicksilver hat and his you know flower board shorts, you're like, ooh, this isn't gonna look good. But if you see <laughs> Like a construction worker show up. Yeah. You're like, oh boy. <laughs> this guy's going to rip. This, this guy means business. <laughs> I mean, I don't surf well now that I haven't been in the water in three months, you know? Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to, I don't say I'm a good surfer, but I can hold my own just yeah. from surfing in winter times. Uh, that alone makes it so that you can, you can pretty much go surfing anywhere. I'm not, I don't look good. I don't have much style at all. I know that because I'm 6'4 and I'm gangly and I'm not very flexible. Uh, so I definitely do not look cool surfing. I think I look like a big old dork, but I could definitely do it. Yeah, I just, I, I think that there's a huge uh, group of people that are like decent surfers. And I'm not even putting you in that category, but just like I, there's people, a lot of people that are not part of the surf industry. They're not really like engaged in that surf industry culture yeah but they love the act of surfing yes and i think that it's like there's more of those people than there are the people that are into the the san clemente groms and you know yes. surfer magazine it's i agree 100 percent. But, but the industry ignores that whole group of people yeah uh, it's it's really strange and and you see a company like my sponsor patagonia has kind of gone for those people Yes, like, I agree. You know, and and they're crushing it way more than the companies that just tried to, you know, uh, market to the twelve-year-old kids. Yeah, and the fact that Patagonia is doing so much recycling of old clothing and putting it into the new products is amazing. And the fact that they have that those wetsuits that are um, that are much more environmentally sound uh, is kind of amazing as well. Like they're. Like the is, is anybody else doing that shit? Like on a, on the company level, as big as Patagonia, I don't know. They, They're a billion really dollar impressive. company. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that anyone has. And and the reason that they've been able to do it is because they 
started that from the beginning, like from 1973, they started making all these decisions like introducing organic cotton a decade before the rest of the industry caught on. And now with wetsuits, they don't use petroleum, you know, so it's, it's based from the rubber tree. Uh, and they've opened up that technology. So much warmer too. They're solid. Yeah. And they've opened up the technology because they're trying to shift the industry so that the rest of it can can catch on. Um, but if, if, the surf industry can't become environmentally friendly. I'm convinced that no industry exactly. will be why, able to because we're like be? the only group that's like a part of this thin seam between society and the wild and actually sees firsthand all the environmental impacts. And also like you literally are floating in it, you know, like it's going into your mouth. Like after a rain, you see exactly what happens to a city's sewer system. And I remember in, in Rockaway, it would be if New York City gets like one inch of rain, the 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 sewers like the sewers just dump in like the actual physical shit waste just runs over into the sewer and goes out to the sea unprocessed. And so it was insane. You would see it after a big rain, and I would get sick. It was it was terrible. Yeah. Um, and you know, LA is just as bad, but just hardly ever rains. So. <laughs> Hey man, I got I got you for ten more minutes, and I wanted to um, ask you about one final thought that I you you might have unique perspective on. I've heard a lot of comics who tour around the country say that they really felt like Trump was going to win before uh-huh. the rest of the country caught on because they were going out to these comedy clubs from around the country and just seeing how pissed off everyone was and and where their mindset was in a way that. Uh, people from New York and and maybe LA were not privy to. Yeah. Did you experience a lot of that when you were on the road? I, I didn't experience that in 2016, but now, like it is, it is a much it you you get a sense that like oh like people in Atlanta that is so that is the the weirdest thing where it's like the majority of smart media people. Who, whose opinions you're constantly reading, they live in big cities on one of the coasts. And it's like, it is like when you go out to the middle of fucking nowhere, it's so different. And the conversations we're having, doesn't they don't even fucking make sense to these people. Like we're talking about, there's two totally separate worlds. Um, and it is fascinating to see. And I think, you know, comics who have to play the road uh all the time we see it constantly and there is there's a great there's a great part in William Gibson's new book Agency I'm a big sci-fi guy but uh is it William Gibson no no it's not William Gibson I'm sorry it's Neil Stevenson's new book um it's a sci-fi which, fiction it's a sci-fi fiction um and and it's not a great book uh but there is one part of it which is fascinating which is like maybe like 25 30 years from now that it's an extension of this idea that I'm talking about. Everyone has like, you know, glasses that kind of like essentially project what we get on on our phone onto the real world. And so it's like all of your news sources is kind of like projected onto the world. And, you know, you get like information about if you see a person, it tells you who that person is, that sort of thing. And, uh, And you have like editors of that stream 
And so people in the coasts who have money can afford these very curated editors who like the information they're seeing is like, you know, essentially the the version of like getting your information from the Atlantic and like the New Yorker and New York magazine. And then when you go to the middle of the country, like America's now been like split into uh, there's there's like the there's the major cities and the highways that go between them and then there's the areas in between those that are not on a major interstate and not a major city and it's called Ameristan and those people like they have their filter is literally showing them a different reality than people who are driving by on the highway have literally piped into their brain and it is so fascinating because I do feel like that's where we're at now, where all of our no- news sources are different. All of our topics of conversation are different. Like we're just we're so curated at this point that it there, it's almost uh, you're you're unable to have a conversation because the facts are different. Yeah. And there are these huge swaths of people that are unreachable. Yes. Totally yeah. unreachable. And and you don't know that they exist until you fall onto one of these email lists or on what's one of these YouTube channels and you realize how fucking big they are and how yeah. many people are making a really good living from newsletters and YouTube videos. And a lot of them might not be factually accurate, yep. but they've got a hell of a lot of people following them. I mean, yeah. just to see the amount of theories that there are about COVID-19 already emerge is really wild. And I'm so all of, crazy. Yeah. I mean, all of that is to say, though, that I do think that comedy is one of the unique forms of communication that can pierce into those echo chambers because the points are made in such a sneaky, hidden way. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Or you can get people trying to beat you up after the show. <laughs> Have you had that happen? I've had Trumpers come up and like do this the this thing I hate, which is which is like, hey man, and they like good show, and they go to shake your hand, and then you shake their hand, thinking it's just like a person leaving the show, and then they grab you by the arm and like pull you in. I fucking hate that so much. It's happened multiple times to me, of just like, you know, one one guy was in Denver, where it's just like Denver is like it's essentially the Portland of the Rockies, and. Uh, he just like pulled in. He's just like Trump did this. Trump did all of this. Like just talk. I was like, what is he talking about? Because I have kind of some anti-Trump material in my in my newest hour, um, and it's always at the end. And I don't put it in the beginning because it's just like, ugh. It's it always divides a room, which is so weird. It's so weird that it's like you're talking to people and we're all having a good time, and then you like say like just something Trump did. And like the rooms like get stiff, you know, and like, yeah, you're so big enough weird. too that I could see you being a fight bait. <laughs> yeah, I'm six foot four. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not good at fights. I'm very bad. I've been in three fights in my entire life and I've lost two of them. It's such a weird thing how big people get like people will try and pick fights with big folks. Yeah, it is very strange. I always try and like, and I always try and laugh that stuff off, you know. Um, but man, I hated it. I really don't like it. I don't like. I don't like getting a. I don't. Uh, if you don't like a comics joke, don't fucking talk to them afterwards. Fair enough. <laughs> you could just not like it. Like that's fine. Just don't like it. It's easy. Yeah. Who are some of your favorite comics right now? Uh. Well. My. I mean, some one of my all-time favorite comics is Eugene Merman, 
if you don't know Eugene, you should go check his stuff out. He is like, I think maybe the reason I got into stand-up comedy. Um, and he has a great new uh, documentary out right now called It Started as a Joke uh, that you can get uh, wherever you get movies, uh, which is all about the... Um, I don't even want to mention what it's about. You got you should check it out. And who else do I like watching right now? There's so many good guys right now. Good guys and get, like when I again when I say guys, it's an East Coast thing, of like just referring to all genders as guys. Um, who's really funny that I love? Beth Stelling is absolutely hilarious, and everyone should check her out. Um, and oh. And if Natalie Palomides is fucking crazy and so funny and doing shit that, like, I've never seen done, and I've watched a lot of crazy shit in my day, and she's doing insane shit. You should check her out if you like. If you like fucking avant-garde, awesome comedy. All right. And you've got a new podcast, Bananas, that it's just called came Bananas. out? called Bananas. Yeah, it's all strange news. Me and my co-host, Scotty Landis, uh, discuss strange, fascinating, surreal news from around the world. Every week, uh, we're everywhere you get podcasts. Um, And we're on the Exactly Right Network, which is the My Favorite Murder Network. So it's been really great to be there. That's the show, everybody. I'm going to play you out with a song called Drip by the Getaway Dogs. They listen to the podcast and they sent me some music. You should listen to more of their music in the link below. And if you're a musician and you want to contribute to this podcast, you can email your tunes to info at kyle.surf. Before you take off, I also want to let you know that I am now writing short stories every week that I post on my blog. The last one was about interviewing my dad and providing interview techniques for you uh, and daring you all to conduct an interview with your dad or mom, any parent. Uh, But that's been getting a lot of good feedback. Thank you for everyone who's been writing comments on it. And uh, if you want to get more of that directly sent to your inbox, sign up for the newsletter in the link below. Thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. If you want to get some CBD in your life, go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10 and get 10% off any order. I recommend their CBD tincture, which I use before I go to sleep. Thank you also to the Nell Newman Foundation. If you want to get involved in the Ron Finley Project, which is a project that the Newman Foundation supports, um, you heard what what Ron needs. Um, We want to build community. We want to get you out into the world as soon as this is all over and uh, support one another. So if you are in LA and you, or you can make it to the South LA area and you are a builder and you want to help Ron with the riser um, over his pool slash garden, um, it's a great project to get involved with. And we're here to just try and connect people up who might be able to offer help to the Ron Finley project. That's it for now. If you can get out in the water, Give someone a high five who is in your quarantine area. Do not give high fives to anyone who is outside of your home. But indoor high fives are more than welcome for now. And uh, have a great day. I'll see you next week. And here's a song called Trip by the Getaway Dogs.